0: Happy Monday, Liberty Kitty Cats. And before we get into today's flagship Lions of Liberty podcast, I've got to tell you about another podcast you should be listening to. And that is the Brian Nichols show. Brian Nichols is a great guy. I've been on his show. He's been on this show. And who is this show for, you may ask? Well, this is for folks who are tired of partisan politics, people who are having trouble finding objective news without the media narrative. For those of you looking to take the next step and truly learn how to sell liberty from an expert sales professional, Brian has had so many amazing guests over the years. He's had Justin Amash, who, of course, has been on this program, Thomas Massey, who I have not had on. I'll have to remedy that soon. He's also had great liberty names like Matt Kibbe, Jason Stapleton, Larry Sharp, and, of course, yours truly, Mark Clare, has been on that program as well well, and there is no better time to be hopping on board The Brian Nichols Show than right now because he has just expanded to two shows per week. So take his five-episode challenge, You listen to five episodes. If you're not hooked, you get your money back. So check it on out wherever you find podcasts or over at briannicholsshow.com. Welcome to the Lions of Liberty podcast. Here's your host,
1: your guide, your shining beacon of liberty, Mark Claire.
0: My guest today is an independent journalist and political analyst, publisher and editor at Foreign Policy Journal, as well as the author of several books. I am so pleased to welcome Jeremy Hammond. Jeremy, are you ready to roar? Let's go. All uh, Jeremy, before we dive into today's topic, in which we'll be discussing a lot of your work reporting on COVID-19, as well as on the vaccine industry, I want to learn a little bit more about you and the path that led you here. So how did you first get down this path of becoming uh, an independent journalist uh, and staying sort of free of uh, corporate and government control?
1: Well, it really began uh, after 9-11. And uh, so right after 9-11, <clears throat> the, the, the attacks, uh, I happened to have already bought my plane tickets to go to Taiwan. And I went to Taiwan right after that. Uh, with the intention of staying for six months and ended up staying for 12 years. Uh, but uh, I I just didn't accept the answer to the question. You know, when I, I was asking myself the question, I was, you know, somewhat naive, probably more more knowledgeable than most, but still asking myself the question, why would somebody do this? And so I was, uh, you know, didn't accept the answer we were given by the government. That is because they hate our freedoms. And so I just started researching once I got over there and I started out with an Internet cafe and eventually had my own computer to research from. Uh, And just started digging into that question, and and of course that led to my research into foreign policy, and started writing about that. Just before the Iraq War, uh, I I was writing home to families and friends, you know, warning them that the government was lying about the weapons of mass destruction and and lying to start a war, Uh, and that led to me eventually launching my first website. And uh, you know, down the road in 2008, I launched Foreign Policy Journal. and so that's kind of how I got started writing. And I, people just kind of encouraged me to, to publish my stuff. And, and I started doing that. So,
0: so you never went to school for journalism. This no. is never really your life plan. You just got so passionate about researching yes. this particular topic and then other topics that kind of led from there that it just became your path, basically, by, by following what you're passionate about.
1: Yeah, I found that I was I found that I was skilled in research and, and analysis. I'm re- really good at being able to connect dots, so to speak, and, and do kind of like synthesis of information. Um, I just kind of was naturally skilled at that, which is what enabled me to see that the government was lying about weapons of mass destruction, for example, without any kind of background in analysis or anything in, in, or training in journalism. I was able to see that pretty clearly. Um, and I've just applied those skills over the years. to. Uh, and then it, that my interest in foreign policy naturally led into interest in economics, because everything that happens in terms of foreign policy, there's always financial interests involved. Uh, and so I got started studying economics pretty intently with a, a particular focus on the role of the Federal Reserve. Uh, and then in 2012, my son was born, um, and so that led to me researching, kind of applying my journalism skills to researching the question of vaccines, because, you know, we as a as a father, we were going to, as parents, we were going to need to make uh, choices about that, and so I wanted to make informed choices, and so I just started researching the medical literature, and, and then, you know, I was always skeptical of, of the, the kind of the, the dogmatic line we always hear about vaccines, Um but when I when I really started digging into the science and reading the science for myself, I was really just blown away at the disparity between what we're told the science says and what the science actually says. Uh, and so that kind of led me to really shifting my focus of my journalism uh, onto the vaccine issue. And now with with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic I've really shifted my focus um, to address that issue and and the propaganda and the fear mongering, uh, and the the it's, it's essentially challenging the lockdown policies, the extreme measures that have been taken in response to the virus uh, that violate liberty and they're. one can easily argue are doing far more harm than good.
0: Let's go back to your work on vaccines, because I think in many ways that led to uh, a lot of your skepticism when it comes to health reporting and that sort of thing that we're seeing now with COVID-19. What were some of the most shocking things that you found just by, like you said, digging into the science itself, not just, you know, reading articles or or out there, but actually looking at everything yourself, doing the same kind of research that you did when you're trying to investigate, uh, you know, foreign policy and 9-11 and and that kind of thing?
1: One of the most striking things is just how... Uh, scientists acknowledge how little they actually know about the immune system, how vaccines work, you know, because there's this kind of this uh, characterization of the science as being settled on the question of vaccines. Like scientists know everything there is to, to know, you know, and like, as though there wasn't more knowledge to be gained that we, we know everything we know perfectly well that, you know, vaccines are quote unquote safe and effective. Um, but, you know, you start reading the literature and, and there's so much controversy and scientists are acknowledging, you know, they don't understand how the immune system functions, how vaccines even work, you know, to, to uh, you know, and how do you define work? That's a whole other question, but, <laughs> you know, the, the, what the effect is on the immune system, both in the short term and the long term. And uh, so just that, that, that disparity between where we're told this, you know, there's all this this science is settled, basically. And then you get into the literature and there's all these uncertainties and unknowns. Uh, and, and that was one thing that really, really struck me among among others. But just in, in, in broad terms, that was one of the things that really struck me.
0: How do you respond when, and I, I'm sure you get this kind of stuff talking about this issue, because anybody that brings up any kind of questioning of the narrative, at least specifically when it comes to vaccines, is immediately labeled an anti-vaxxer or a conspiracy theorist. And uh, I, I'm sure you get this stuff all the time. How do you respond to people when they're just, they're so maybe ingrained in what the narrative is that any sort of questioning of it, even if you're just pointing at the exact same facts that they are supposed to be looking at as well um you know how do you sort, sort of try to refute the, the narrative for people that you know don't really do the research themselves
1: yeah well anytime i'm challenged with those types of comments you know those dismissive you know the, the derogatory label anti-vaxxer or conspiracy theorist or, or any of this uh I, I just i always challenge the my interlocutor to to you know point out if i've if i've errored on some point or of fact or logic in, in my article point it out to me i'd be happy to uh, to correct it if, it if i've made an error and how often do
0: they actually point that out <laughs>
1: Um, Never. Okay. Never.
0: I, I mean, that, I can't think of. Well, there was one time.
1: I can think of one time where I, where I challenged Peter Hotez, Dr. Peter Hotez, who is one of the, you know, he's always quoted in the mainstream media. And I wrote an article exposing how he lies to the public uh, in a New York Times uh, article op-ed he, he wrote. And he did. I he did identify one one uh, factual error I had made where I had mis- I had confused the, the uh, European company Merck with the U.S. manufacturer Merck, which I immediately corrected. And and, every, and the, My argument stood. And of course, that dispels any work you've ever done over the last, you know, twelve. Hours. Well, and, and that's not to say I don't make make mistakes in my work. It's just that when sure. I do, it, it tends to be my own readers readers who, who very courteously and and you know pointed out to me and say, well, you you wrote this, but actually this. Uh, and so it's it's my friendly readers who who tend to, to point out my errors to me. Whereas when I challenge you know people who are who are, you know dismissing my work and, and labeling me and, and calling me names and things, when I challenge them to point out errors, that they're never capable of doing it. So it's not that I don't make, make mistakes, but you know I do pride myself that when I do make a mistake, I'll I'll immediately go and, and correct it with an acknowledgement of the error at the foot of my articles and uh, and I try to be very accurate. And, and you know, anyone who's familiar with my work knows that I, I everything I write is fully referenced. Uh, at least most of my articles are very rarely do I write something where it's kind of more of an opinion piece where I just kind of, you know, shorter, shorter articles. I do a lot of long form content that's, that's very in-depth, detailed articles, fully referenced with, with uh, you know, references from the medical literature uh, primarily, um, or or mainstream sources like the New York Times. I often write, you know, challenging New York Times propaganda. And so... One thing that I, 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 one thing that you can notice is if you actually go and read articles like in the New York Times, Washington Post, whatever mainstream media source, if you read what they say and the claims that they make, and then click their links to go read their sources, uh, a lot of times you'll find that the sources actually contradict, or that either either that the source doesn't support the claim they're citing it for, or actually can contradict the claim for which they're citing it. Um, so, and that's that's very common. I mean, that's routine. I can. It's it's very common that I read an article and then I check the source and the source doesn't support the claim or contradicts it. Um, you'd be amazed at how frequently that that is the case. Going back to your initial research there when you first, like I said,
0: when you were having a child and decided to research vaccines, do you mind sharing like what conclusion you came to as, as far as your, I mean, if you don't want to share your personal choice, that's OK. But what what kind of things did you come to as far as vaccines overall that sort of influenced your decision?
1: Well, I, the way I see it, you know, the the media were supposed to just follow the CDC's recommendations and the media, you know, if you don't, if you dissent or, or question or criticize, uh, public vaccine policy, you know, again, you're, you're just labeled an anti, you're dismissed as an anti-vaxxer. But of course, you know, a lot of the, the parents who have chosen not to vaccinate, to continue vaccinating the kids are, are, you know, more aptly labeled ex-vaxxers because they did vaccinate their, their children and, uh, and they saw the damages from that. And, um, so to me, you know, one of the things is they always compare things. They they always compare things in terms of relative risk. So, you know, if you don't get the vaccine and you get measles, then this. Um, but, you know, I, I look at things in terms of absolute risk and the chance of my son even getting measles, being even being exposed to it in the first place is almost, you know, is near zero. <laughs> so I have to factor
0: that into the equation. Right. Right. But the argument you would get to that. You would just hear, well, the whole reason that you don't have to worry about getting measles is because we have herd immunity because of the vaccine. So that you would be irresponsible not to continue with the vaccine because that would uh, you know, hurt everybody else. So even if you decided that your risk was low, uh, that doing not doing so for your child would uh, would maybe you know hurt the overall idea of herd immunity if other parents continued to do the same thing. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm sure you get that that sort of objection as well. Yeah,
1: thanks for playing devil's advocate by bringing that point up um, because it's an important one to, to address. So, I mean, first of all my my son's not a risk to anybody if he doesn't have measles <laughs> you know? if he doesn't get measles if, so i have to i have to assess the risk to him first of all and it's, let's say that we were in a, in a in a location where you know the risk of an outbreak was you know significant mm-hmm. i mean there are places around the country where outbreaks do occur and uh there, there, are, there is that significant risk of, of an outbreak um so in that situation, just hypothetically, you know, I would have to then look at the risk of well, if he, if he, my son did, did get measles, what would what would be the risk to him from measles? And and I, I consider the risk to him, my son, from measles to be extremely low. And if you look at the the statistics and the data from the pre-vaccine era, uh, first of all, mortality from measles had already plummeted. I mean, it used to be quite deadly disease, but not in developed countries. It's not. And and before the vaccine was even introduced, the the, the mortality rate had already plummeted. Uh, so that the, the mortality um, rate from measles was something like one in 10,000.
0: And that was due to just general better medical care and, and technology progressing and that sort of thing. In a more increasing
1: country. standard of living. Yeah. I mean, better nutrition, you know, better health care, better understanding of of pathogens and, and uh, you know, vitamin A, for example, is a known you know, vitamin A deficiency is a known risk factor for measles. Um, so it, uh, and, and that's why it's still quite deadly in, in developing countries, you know, it's because they their nutritional, you know, the malnutrition, where malnutrition is rampant, it, it, the death rate is high. Um, but, you know, we, and you often see the media like citing death rates in African countries to like scare parents in the U.S. into vaccinating, which is really deceptive because uh, you, you can't compare the mortality rate in those two different populations. Um, And so, you know, one of the things that also strikes me about the research into uh, pathogens like measles is the opportunity cost that there is because, you know, you have the kind of this, this government funding research and, and, and in the industry funding research. And so the science there's this bias in the science and it's all skewed toward researching vaccine technology. But, you know, what if, what, where's all the research into, you know, the question of why was it that certain children, a small minority of children who did get measles in the pre-vaccine era in, in the U.S. did get serious complications and some did die from it? So the death rate was, you know, on average about 450 children would die a year from measles before the vaccine so why why was that so where's all the research into that you know what was different about those children what put those children at risk for measles whereas for most children the vast majority of children it was a benign illness that they recovered from that they gained lifelong immunity from uh, and, and, and and there's also studies associating measles infection with childhood with other health benefits so these non-specific effects of both infection and vaccinations um, that beneficial or detrimental and in, in the case of measles there's beneficial health effects That have been associated with measles infection, uh, such as reduced risk of much more serious diseases later in life, including uh, certain types of cancers, uh, uh, Hodgkin's lymphoma, not Hodgkin's lymphoma, certain types of tumors, cardiovascular disease. So these are, you know, what I like to call opportunity costs, to borrow a term from economics. So I
0: might have missed out by not getting measles
1: as as a kid. Yeah. Well, right, exactly. I mean, I, I, I do. I mean, I frankly wish I would have had it as a child, and then I wouldn't have to. To worry about it grow as an adult with you know, there's something called secondary vaccine failure which is essentially waning immunity um, which is a problem with the measles vaccine uh for two reasons one because the, the the vaccine doesn't confer as robust an immunity as natural infection and secondly because of the because of the lack of circulation because the, the measles the virus i mean the vac- let's face it the vaccine is effective at reducing <clears throat> the incidence of measles
0: Right, you're you're not questioning that vaccines do something that that you know reduce the risk of getting a disease. Sure.
1: Yeah, they have an effect. And in, in this case, you know, if you want to say that that in that, that case the vaccine works in that limited sense of you know the verb working, um, it does work to to reduce incidence of of the viral circulation. You know, the virus doesn't circulate as much as it, as it used to, almost you know almost none. And, and but there's a consequence of that, which is that the the natural you know when you were before the. Uh, vaccine was introduced, the the circulation of measles, you know, adults would constantly get re-exposed from from children, and and elderly people would get re-exposed, and so that was a natural booster to their own immunity, so uh, so that, you know, that they had lifelong immunity and they would never get measles again, and they weren't at risk from measles because they had it as a child, and then they were exposed to it repeatedly throughout their lives, uh, or occasionally at least throughout their lives, and and so they had a a robust lifelong immunity. That's changed now. So that, that the uh, essentially what mass vaccination has done is shifted the risk burden in the event of exposure away from children, in whom it was generally a benign illness, and onto those who are at increased risk of potentially deadly complications, namely infants and adults. And adults, I've just explained why. And um, infants, for why is the risk higher for infants today? Uh, it's a little bit less uh, obvious, but. It also has to do with primary and secondary vaccine failure, primary vaccine failure being some people get the vaccine and it just doesn't work. It doesn't confer uh, any kind of immunity, uh, whereas secondary vaccine vaccine failure, again, is that waning immunity. And so because of, you know, there's also something, something called tertiary vaccine immunity uh, or vaccine failure, which uh, it refers to, like for example, the, the strains of, of the pathogen can evolve over time so that the vaccine becomes less effective over time and things like that. Um, so there's this phenomenon of vaccine failure. And so what's happened is that mothers today, uh, unlike mothers in the pre-vaccine era who were naturally infected with measles as children, and they were able to confer what's called passive maternal immunity onto their babies, which protected them during their infancy um, from measles infection. And so the, the, the death rate among infants back then was, was low. And so um, what's happened today is that the, the actual, the, the case fatality rate, so the deaths per reported uh, cases has actually risen over time. Ah. Precisely because of mass vaccination. And precisely and the reason for that is because of this shifting of the risk burden away from children who to whom it was a very low risk and onto infants and adults.
0: So what do you think is really behind the mass acceptance of vaccines? I mean, I think for most parents, it's just something that when they they have their child, they go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, we recommend this series of vaccines and they don't really think about it maybe much further than that. Uh, some people decide to dig deeper uh, like yourself and those people might come to different conclusions. Some people might dig deeper like you do, did and decide, oh, we think the risk is worth it. Uh, but what's really behind the the, uh, the, the the fact that people are so, into, I guess I don't want to use the word indoctrinated, but I will, uh, why people are so indoctrinated just blindly accept that not just that vaccines quote unquote work, however you want to define that, but that they're just something that we should all do and we shouldn't really be questioning.
1: It's because of what I call the vaccine religion, which is an extension of the state religion, um, where people have this faith in government to take care of them and to make decisions for them and and to, to tell them the truth about things. But of course, this is very naive and the government constantly lies to the public about all kinds of issues you and you name the issue across the board, the government will lie, you know, whether it's foreign policy, economics, vaccines, whatever um, that's what politicians do. <laughs> They're quite good at it. Um, and so we have, you know, people have this faith and trust in, in, in public health agencies like the CDC and the FDA uh, and they don't understand the corruption and the conflicts of interests within these, with, within these organizations, these governmental organizations, and uh, they don't understand the industry's influence. And, and the second factor of that is is the media's role, the mainstream media, and how the media don't do journalism on this issue. They do public policy advocacy, which, again, is, is a reflection of that that state religion, that vaccine religion, where it's, it's, it's dogma. People accept it dogmatically, you know, the, the dogmatic expression that vaccines are safe and effective, which doesn't have any practical meaning, if you think about it, because... <clears throat> every vaccine is different. Every vaccine has a different profile of safety and effectiveness and every individual is different and has a different risk of both the pathogen that the vaccine is intended to present, prevent the disease of of and, and a different risk of injury from the vaccine. And so there has to be an individual risk-benefit analysis. And this is the big point that I really want to emphasize. The, 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 like you said, you know, some people might research the science and read the same stuff that I read and come to a different conclusion to me and that's fine. And I don't, I don't call them names or anything because they come to a different conclusion than me. It's just that that's the point. We have to have individual choice. I mean, we have to have respect the right to informed consent. Uh, and and it, the, the choice has to be an individual one. And there has to be an individual risk-benefit analysis. And what public, policy, public vaccine policy does is it treats vaccination as a one-size-fits-all solution to disease prevention. Uh, and that's really the problem. In fact, I don't even critic, you know, people call me an anti-vaxxer because I criticize the public vaccine policy. But I mean, I have, I have nothing wrong, per se, with vaccines. I don't have a problem with vaccines, per se. I, my problem is with the policies and the mandates uh, and the coercion and the lies and the propaganda that, that it, you know, as you to go back to the question, that really uh, manufactures people's consent for uh, the CDC's recommendations. Uh, and so people, you know, a lot of people might make that that decision to vaccinate as an informed choice. Um, but I think the vast majority of parents who 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 just kind of go along with the CDC's recommendations and do what their pediatricians tell them to do um really haven't done any research beyond like reading the CDC information sheet that they get from their pediatrician, uh, which is dishonest and deceptive and, and totally inadequate.
0: Yeah, because well, people will say, "Oh, we, we you read the insert, and uh, you know it's no." But what, what's actually in those inserts that the pediatrician gives you, or can give you anyway, if you ask for it, as opposed to like what what's really behind all that? You'd have to ask because they don't they don't. Yeah, they don't hand you a flyer with all with all the information.
1: I, I don't think most doctors actually have, have ever read the the inserts themselves. I mean, the doctors also get their information from the CDC and the mm-hmm. American Academy of Pediatrics, and, which is an industry funded organization. Um, and they don't really most doctors don't do their own research most doctors don't go digging into the medical literature to, to research the topic of vaccines they had very little information about vaccines in their medical training and you can ask doctors that they'll tell you that um that they you know they don't really spend a lot of time learning about vaccines it's all kind of very basic and, and dogmatic the way the way that it is and so uh you, you know the information you get I, so most doctors i don't think will do that but then you know, if so, if you do ask, you maybe they'll give you the, the package inserts. You can go to the FDA's website and read the package inserts for the vaccines, uh, which are from the manufacturers. that in, and They're required; they're legally required to have this information, these disclaimer, legal disclaimers, essentially, in their product uh, packages for the vaccines, uh, listing the potential adverse events, for example, of, of vaccines. And you know, you go into the, if you read those those inserts, uh, you know, it's it's quite uh, there's quite a disparity between the, the the line that we're told that vaccines are safe and effective, and and what they say in the in the inserts. Sometimes also in terms of effectiveness. Yeah, what what are some of those potential
0: risks that they even openly will state? in the inserts, because a lot of people will still say, even if they've heard everything you've said up to this point, they might say, well, even if it's, you know, maybe there's some, some lifelong immunity issues, what have you, but I still don't want my kid to get vaccines. I I still don't want my kid to get measles, I should say. Uh, So we should just do the vaccine because at the end of the day, at least you're a little more protected. Like you even said, it does uh, give some level of protection uh, for most people. So what are some of the immediate risks why someone like yourself might stop and say, I don't want to put this needle in my child. I don't think it's worth it. Even if it does provide me a little bit more protection against measles.
1: Well, as an example, febrile febrile seizures, so seizures with fever, are are a fairly common uh, adverse event associated with the MMR vaccine, the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine combination. Um, And febrile seizures have been associated with long-term consequences, uh, so an increased risk of epilepsy. And epilepsy has also been associated with an increased risk of, of autism. Uh, or, or being autistic rather has been associated with it, with an increased risk of of epilepsy.
0: And and anytime you mention anytime you mention autism or anybody mentions autism in relations to vaccine, I mean the first thing you always hear is that study was debunked. It's, and it's just po- they point to that one study. Uh, I think the guy by the guy in England, and that was you know involved just a certain small sampling of children, I believe. And then ever any connection made after that in any way, shape, or form. Everybody always points back to that one study. Uh, so, what's the problem with that argument? The idea that aut- the connection to autism has been debunked.
1: Yeah, well, that goes back to the question about what's in the package inserts. So, one of the one of the other things in the package inserts that will lead into that. The answer to that question is uh, encephalopathy, which is you know brain damage. Um, and so, uh, it, in the, the U.S. government has uh, has acknowledged that vaccination can cause brain damage that manifests as symptoms of autism. This was acknowledged in a, in a case that fell under the, the what's called the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, the VICP, which was established under a 1986 law that granted broad legal immunity to the vaccine manufacturers. So the effect of the law, uh, the effect of the legal immunity plus the Vaccine Injury Compensation Program is that uh, the financial burden for vaccine injuries is shifted away from the uh, the the, um, the pharmaceutical industry and onto the tax paying consumers. So the, the fund is, uh, the program is funded by uh, an excise tax on every vaccine dose administered. So uh, encephalopathy is, is one of the things that's listed in the inserts. And the, it, the government, again, has acknowledged that encephalopathy uh, is, a, is a potential consequence of vaccination that can manifest as some symptoms of autism. And so coming to the 1998 uh, uh, Lancet study that was retracted, of course, it, it, there's this kind of there's a script that pretty much every mainstream media article that you read about vaccines is, is kind of like follows the same script. Right, uh, yeah. Like you said, bringing up that study and all that was debunked. And this was the origin of, you know, the fears, parental fears about autism, but that's completely false. The entire narrative is false. And I've written about this. Um, so for example, you know, the, the, the claim that, that that was the origins of parental fears about uh, vaccines causing autism is completely false. And I, I can simply prove that that's false by pointing to a 1991 uh, review by the Institute of Medicine that discussed parental fears of the DTP vaccine, the diphtheria, tetanus, and Whole Cell pertussis vaccine causing autism. Um, and so you know, there were that, that study, the claim that that study was the origin of these fears is, is false. The origin of, of this concern about vaccines potentially causing autism comes from the parents, <laughs> parents who vaccinated their children, and witness their children regress into autism or, or you know, develop other developmental neuro, neurodevelopmental disorders. Uh, and so, so that's the origin of, of it. And so, you know, and then we're also told that there's been all these studies since that have, you know, um, that have proven supposedly that vaccines don't cause autism, but that's untrue. And for you, you know, I mentioned earlier how the CDC lies to people and you go to the CDC's website and they have a page that's titled "Vaccines Do Not Cause Autism," and uh, to support that claim, they cite a number of uh, a number of observational studies and an Institute of Medicine report, uh, I believe, in two thousand eleven. And so, if you go to that two thousand eleven Institute of Medicine review and, and read what it actually says, they actually point out how observational studies are insufficient to, you know, to uh, falsify the hypothesis. Uh, and, and, and in fact, none of this, those observational studies were actually designed to test the specific hypothesis that vaccines administered according to the CDC's uh, routine schedule um, can increase uh, the risk of, uh, of autism in susceptible children, children who either have a genetic or an environmentally caused susceptibility. None of the studies that it reviewed were were even designed to test that hypothesis and so in in it one of the the reason why observational studies are insufficient to uh, falsify the hypothesis is that observational studies uh, you know have um it's it's just kind of a weakness inherent in this type of methodology of the study design where there's they're, they're prone to what's called selection bias um and as an example of that, there was a study in 2015 that came out that, of course, the media hyped as well. In another study, you're just the, the vaccine-autism link. But if you actually go and read that study, what they actually found was not that uh, the, the proper conclusion was not that children who got the MMR vaccine uh, were, were no more likely. In fact, they found a negative association. So it wasn't that the, the children who got the vaccine were less likely to develop autism. It was that children who were at higher risk of developing autism, for example, younger siblings, uh, of children that had been vaccinated and did develop autism, those children uh, who are at higher risk of developing autism were less likely to be vaccinated with the MMR vaccine. Huh. So that's an exam- example of something called, uh, 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 the specific type of selection bias is called healthy user bias. Right. So it was the parents were had, had vaccinated their first child, witnessed their child regress into autism, and so didn't vaccinate their second child. Which seems to prove the point a little bit, but... <laughs> right, right, right. So all they really... Pro- you know, All they really proved with that study was that there's this selection bias inherent in, in observational studies, and yet they drew this f- f- fallacious conclusion that there was no association between vac- between the vaccine and autism. And that, that conclusion does not follow from their actual findings. <laughs> yeah. So many
0: people I know, when you bring up you know any kind of questioning of the CDC and how they are there to disseminate information about whether it's vaccines or uh, infectious diseases, I mean, the biggest cr- thing you get is, well, if, if we don't have an organization like this uh, run by the government, an organization, quote unquote, we can trust, as uh, some might say, uh, how will we get this information? How will we get information, accurate information about vaccines, about diseases? And uh, for many people, it's hard to wrap, for them to wrap their heads around any other way to get information other than one from a central organization. Uh, but what's your response to that when people bring that up? That, so what are we supposed to do? So, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's uh, corrupt at this moment, but maybe we just need new people in charge is, is kind of what you'll get.
1: Yeah, if the government wasn't involved at all, people could get their information directly from the manufacturers, which w- w- would have they would be legally liable for the information and, and, and the products so that if they did cause injury, parents could sue uh, and, and there would be discovery and the whole process and the juries, and um, there would be that whole process. And the media would be doing its function.
0: I mean, to me, that's the big red flag with vaccines—the uh, that vaccine court, that special court. I mean, if you if you're if you're on on the up and up, you can just do things in regular court where people sue people for damages and yada yada yada. And then, but what's the what's the justification that the maybe the vaccine industry or the the government uses for why this special court needs to exist for this one you know very specialized section of the medical industry?
1: Because there were so many lawsuits against pharmaceutical companies in the early 1980s, uh, up until that law was passed, um, for vaccine injuries, that vaccine manufacturers were going out of business. And that was threatening public vaccine policy. It threatened the vaccine supply. And so public policymakers said, well, we can't have that because, you know, we recommend everyone get their vaccines and we can't have a, a supply shortage. So we have to protect the pharmaceutical companies. That was the rationale. That was the reason for it.
0: No, at least they're honest. That's to protect the pharmaceutical companies.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And of course, they did it in the name of, you know, it was called the National uh, Child Vaccine, Childhood Vaccine Injury Act, I believe was the name of it. I forget exactly. And so they did it in the name of the children, of course. course, Um, That was just kind of the propaganda spin that they put Mm -hmm. on the law, which, again, shifts the financial burden away from the pharmaceutical industry and onto the taxpaying consumers, the the financial burden for vaccine injuries.
0: (laughs) Hey, kitty Cats, gotta take a quick little break here to tell you about something that does not cause injuries, and that is the delicious coffee from our friends at Lorenzotti, Italy. These guys are not only great coffee connoisseurs and entrepreneurs. They're also libertarians. They're also listeners of this show. They are also Patreon supporters of this show. So they are the kind of person that you want to support. So if you are a coffee drinker, please do head over to LaurenZotti.coffee That's LaurenZotti.coffee not .com. Use discount code LIONS at checkout for 10% off your order. And what's great about these guys, they don't just sell coffee. They also help people set up their own coffee shops. They have financing They can rent equipment. They do so much to not only provide coffee for people, but also to help set up other people as entrepreneurs in that same space. What an awesome concept. So please do head over to Lauren Zotti, L O R E N Z O T T I, laurenzotti.coffee. And don't forget to use discount code LIONS for 10% off your order. I want to dovetail a bit into um, you know obviously all these years of research has made you skeptical of course of any sort of reporting uh, when it comes to the medical industry. So I'm curious when you started to when your sort of journalism red flag started to go off about coronavirus about COVID 19. When you started to see the reporting in the mainstream media, uh, when did you first start to? I'm um, probably immediately is my guess. I <laughs> become skeptical of the narrative.
1: I well, I wouldn't say quite immediately. I would, it was kind of I mean it was obviously on my radar. I was kind of paying attention in the early days of it. I mean. A, I was kind of more expecting it. I guess I anticipated it would be something like SARS, where right. um, you know, back in two thousand three. I we'll okay, so about it t- for a
0: few months. Um, it doesn't affect yeah, most yeah. of us,
1: and we move on with our lives. Yeah, or, or you know, Zika, or uh, you know, the the H one N one flu. I mean, there's there's all these outbreaks that happen over over time, and then they always hype it, and they always make it su- such a a big. Uh, you know, they always, there's always this fear mongering response to it. And I was in Taiwan actually at the time that's the SARS outbreak. And I remember being like the only person on the public transit, not, not not wearing a mask. Cause I just, I wasn't afraid. I just had no, no concerns about it whatsoever. Um, and I, I kind of, I guess I expected it to be more like the, the original SARS, but of course SARS-CoV-2 is, is much more contagious. And, um, and so it did outbreak and become a pandemic. Um, and, and kind of, I guess the point where I really started um, paying more attention to it and, just, and actually not just kind of passively reading about it, but kind of more researching it, was when the World Health Organization held up China's response as a model for other countries to follow.
0: <laughs> and China had a very, uh, very, well, they had two different responses. I think you might say. At first, they kind of maybe tried to hide it or didn't really talk about it. But then once it was known, they they pretty much locked down uh, as bad as total, right. totalitarian as you can be.
1: Right, exactly, and so for the for the World Health Organization to uh, to hold that up as the model to follow, uh, obviously concerned me, and 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 you know that was a threat to my liberty as I saw it, and so I started really researching and, and really paying attention and following the studies as they came out, and, and of course it's a rapidly evolving, the science is rapidly evolving still, and um, you know there's so much new information, and that became really overwhelmingly consuming you know time consuming um, because there's just so much information and there's so much propaganda and, and fear-mongering and uh, the policies are not um you know of the course they always cite they always claim that they're science-based policies but they're not i mean they're really not evidence-based policies and they're they're based on fear and panic uh not not the data and so that's what i've been trying to do is just kind of show people try to calm people's fears. And, and let, let's approach this just rationally, calmly. And yes, there is, there is a serious risk. Uh, certain individuals are at serious risk from this virus. Uh, there's no question about that. But you, the, the fact is, is that the data show that most people, the vast majority of people, are not at uh, significant risk of serious COVID-19. Um, Including children, you are not. You know the risk to children is is quite is very low. In fact, it's acknowledged that um, that the risk from the influenza, from the seasonal flu, is much greater for children than. Uh, sars cov
0: too, and and yet we never had uh we never shut down schools for the seasonal flu or H one N one and we never had I mean some of these pictures that I see from I think a lot of them are from Europe are where these this thing where kids are there some in some schools they're in these little pods six feet apart other schools I've seen them when they're in gym class and they're in these little circles I mean it's it's really really creepy stuff some of the solutions yeah. that you see presented to something that they're still learning so much about but at the same time like like you've mentioned there's no evidence that it's really causing the kind of harm or has the, even the potential to Cause the kind of harm in relation to the reaction that's being presented for it,
1: right? And that goes back to the models that came out. I and mean, like, for example, the, the Imperial College London model that came out in March, like mid-March, that was so influential in causing the UK to shift its policy. The US shifted its policy um, from you know we were in, we were sold the lockdown measures uh, on the grounds that well these are just a temporary thing. We have to for a couple of weeks we're going to have to lock down just to prevent the hospitals from being overwhelmed, and then you know we can kind of ease up once once hospitals kind of ramp up their ability to 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 um, you know, ramp up their capacity to be able to handle. It.
0: I remember those good old days when they we told we were told oh we just need a couple of weeks to just you know separate and let things calm down and then things will go back to normal. Yeah. And at least here in California, I'm here. Uh, you know, we're in September here, pretty much. And uh, you know, it's still uh, we're maybe we're not as locked down as we were in March, but uh, we're certainly not anywhere close to normal. And I know it's different in various parts of the country, but here it's certainly. Uh, you know, we go from the, we don't need to wear masks and we shouldn't wear masks, and so now technically speaking, anytime I leave my house here in California, I'm supposed to wear a mask. Uh, I do that when I go into establishments, but I refuse to do it if I'm just going to
1: go walk my dogs or, or something like that, because that's just ridiculous. So, Yeah, agreed. Same here. Uh, but yeah, So that's how it was sold to people, right? These lockdown measures were sold on that. That that was the claim. We have to flatten the curve, and that, that was how they were sold to the public. Um, but what, what the public wasn't told, what the media didn't tell the public and what policymakers didn't tell the public was that same model, that same paper from the Imperial College. Uh, the, the media kind of focused on the first half of a the graph they presented in that paper where they, they kind of showed that, you know, with, with the lockdown measures, they could keep the, the hospitals from being overwhelmed. Um, whereas if, if there weren't these lockdown measures, there was going to be this huge, massive, you know, overwhelm of hospitals uh, and massive deaths. And But they didn't show the second half of the graph where they showed that once the once the lockdown measures were lifted, uh, the, the the epidemic comes surging back and causes it, it, it causes an even worse problem than would have been the case had the UK government just continued its initial policy to begin with, of sensible measures, you know, of, yes, isolating, protecting the elderly, people who are at high risk, people with comorbidities, um, you know, quarantining people who, who, who are infected, but not quarantining the entire population, not quarantining healthy people, you know, letting, letting people who are young and healthy and, and at low risk of serious COVID-19, getting on with their lives, getting out, you know, keeping the economy rolling, uh, making a living for the families, putting food on the table, keeping a roof over their heads. You know, that was that was sensible, and uh, th- that, that is what a sensible policy would look like, and what lockdown measures have done is essentially the opposite. In fact, lockdown measures have utterly failed to protect elderly people in uh, nursing care homes in particular. Um, you know, there's many states across the U.S. where more than 50 percent of deaths have occurred in, among nursing uh, home residents. Um, New York is an example. New York actually sent some of the states here in Michigan and, and also in New York, they, they were sending outpatients from, from hospitals, uh, elder, elderly people, and ordering nursing care homes to, to admit uh, uh, patients who were, you, you know, uh, sent, from ho- sent away from hospitals. and they were, So they were so narrowly focused on preventing, you know, on flattening the curve. With, you know, they had these blinders on. They were so narrowly focused on, on opening up hospital beds that they were ordering nursing care homes to take back COVID-19 patients. And the result was disastrous. I mean, I, I consider that to be nothing short of murder.
0: It doesn't. Um, I mean, I was going to say. I mean, at some point, you have to go from okay, they're just they're just being the government, and they just don't know what they're doing. To this is just pure, at at best, negligence, and, and at worst, I mean, something you know uh, more more malignant. Because you know, it doesn't take a, a genius to say if you have a disease that is affecting and everyone admits in the beginning, it's going to affect the elderly the worst. You don't take someone with it and shove them in a in a, in a building with a bunch more elderly. Utterly, people who are at risk,
1: right? I mean, you'd, you'd think that would be common sense, but uh, you know, these are politicians we're talking about. <laughs> so, you know, and, and this is a, this goes to the point also. Of, you know, there's a, this idea that we're supposed to have this faith and trust in, in government officials, and yet this is the same types of people who who had who had that policy that we're supposed to trust to take care of us and 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 protect us from from SARS CoV two. I mean, you know, I, I don't think there's a top-down solution here. We need, to, you know, the the solution is liberty. You know, everyone needs to be able. Again, it comes down to the individual risk, you know, risk analysis, because no politician in Washington D.C. or Lansing or what whatever state capital I'm here in Michigan uh, can can determine and can make that that assessment on behalf of the entire population of you know, for example, don't you can't go to work or you must wear a mask. You know, anytime you're you're out. In public, Uh, you know, only the individual who is aware of their certain, who has a special knowledge of, of their own circumstances, can can make this type of risk benefit analysis and determine, for example, you know, should I go to work or should I stay home. You know, is it necessary? Should I wear a mask to protect myself or to protect other people as source control? Uh, or, or is it totally unnecessary and pointless for me to do that in, 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 given my circumstances? You know, these, these are questions that can only be answered on the individual level. No politician can answer this on behalf of an entire population. Again, there, there's this idea that there's this one-size-fits-all solution to this You know, this pandemic uh, is it, very similar to the public vaccine policy where it's a one-size-fits-all solution despite the individual variance and risk uh, and, and benefits of certain um, interventions. And so, you know, that, that's, again, just to the point. That, so, again, liberty, you know, freedom is the solution here. We, we need to have people uh, being able to get on with their lives and, and, and judge for themselves whether the risk, you know, is, is worth it. You know, for example, you know, if, if, I, if I was employed and I had a job and, I, I, uh, you know, I had somebody and I, I was living with my parents, for example, uh, you know, I had my son's grandparents were living with us, uh, and I might consider the risk of, of me going back to work too great, you know, given if my, head, if my parents had comorbidities or something, you know, that would be for me to decide. And anyone who doesn't want to go to work, obviously, can, can make the choice of not to go to work. But for, for, for those people to say, well, nobody else can go to work either. <laughs> right. You know, for people who are at low risk and, and they have, you know, in, in low household risk and, and they judge that there is not such a risk for their household um, to be able to go out and go work and make a living. I, I mean, th- that decision needs to be based and the individual
0: Sure, because not only I mean when it comes to the lockdowns, not only does the initial study itself uh, even suggest that there's are consequences to locking down outside of you know sh- not not spreading the transmission in the very short term, but on top of that, uh, we that that even ignores the fact of all the economic devastation that occurs by not allowing people to work, by not allowing people to generate income for what started as weeks and in many places has become months and months and months. I mean, there's places here in Los Angeles that are they're just done. There's no way they can survive whether it's massage parlors or you know restaurants that don't have the ability to to serve people outside. I mean, so many of these businesses are not coming back. And the worst part is, based on everything we can see, it's not actually helping stop the virus anyway.
1: Well, yeah, so they, again, there's this, it goes back to that narrow focus of policymakers. And they're so fo- narrowly focused on just preventing COVID-19 deaths, they're not considering all the countless other factors that we must consider. In in fact, again, going back to the Imperial College paper that came out, uh, I mean, they stated right in there that they don't consider the costs of these the measures that they were advocating well how can you advocate a policy right. of shutting down the economy without considering the negative consequences of shutting down the economy i mean it's totally irresponsible seems like the cost should at least be one side of the equation <laughs> right and, and policymakers kind of just followed that same line of thinking where they, they just didn't seem to care or consider the harms uh, and and it's, it's very easy to make the argument that the costs are f- far outweigh any benefits um, for, of these lockdown measures. And just to, just to say I can do that with the single statistic, which is the UN's estimate of the, the increased the increase in uh, infant mortality in, uh, around, around the globe globally because of these global lockdown measures. And they estimated that well over 100,000 excess you know, it, it, it excess infant mortality. Uh, so if you consider this in terms of you know, quality-adjusted years of life lost, you know m- most of the people who, who die of COVID-19, let's face it, they're, they're elderly. Many of them are already sick. I mean, most of them are already sick. Many of them are already dying, and they wouldn't have had much time left on this earth with us anyways. Whereas when you have children dying, because of you know in increase in infant mortality you know increase in malnutrition and 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 all the factors that that all the consequences of the economic harms you're talking about an entire life lost all of those years of life lost so if you look at it in terms of years of life lost uh, you know I think it's very easy to make the case that that these lockdown measures are doing far more harm than good and just with that one statistic alone and there's so many other statistics you know increases in suicides and and the depression and in um you know shortening of of people's lifespans because of you know uh, you know dietary um issues, you know, loss of n- proper nutrition, you know, people don't, I mean, there are economic harms when people lose their jobs and they lose the ability to put healthy food on the table and they're eating junk food because it's cheaper. Right. Unfortunately, you know, when you eat unhealthy, it happens to be cheaper in this country to eat unhealthy food. Um, there's all these, these, these long, you know, short and long-term negative consequences that policymakers just have not even considered, uh, which is criminally reckless
0: and there's just so much you can't see you can't necessarily measure i mean you can maybe look at um depression statistics or suicide statistics but you can't see the mental state that everybody is in who might appear normal who might not seek help but they're they're maybe even unknowingly becoming mm. you know putting being put into a mental state by being locked down by not by losing their job for months and months on end and in some ways maybe giving up mental hope that things will ever go back to normal and and maybe with good reason because uh, now we're hearing i mean what we were first hearing was of course flatten the curve and just let the hospitals calm things down and then we can get back to normal that's that's obviously off the table. That's obviously not the plan for anybody here. Um, but but now we're hearing, well, for, at least for what we're hearing from a lot of uh, governors and a lot of uh, you know government officials, uh, we're hearing, well, we can go back to normal once we have an effective vaccine. So now we're kind of dovetailing back to uh, you're, you're working to vaccines here, and now it's really being pushed as the only time we can co- quote-unquote go back to normal is when yeah. there's a vaccine, which really implies that you're not going to be able to do the normal things unless you take that vaccine. Um, so i, I want to know what your thoughts are on, on the push for the this vaccine that is i guess b- being created or it's about to be forced on us either through uh, direct laws or at least through a, a kind of social pressures or just pressures to live I and mean, whether it's just your private company uh, who might across the board at the guidance of the cdc be requiring this vaccine going forward or whether it's an airline or another government that's going to require that vaccine to travel what is this going to look like based on what you've been seeing and based on your research in the vaccine industry?
1: Well, I happened to have just read an article yesterday from National Geographic uh, on specifically that topic about the vaccine about mandates. and and of course, it was it was making the argument that we need to mandate this. And, and they were they were kind of bewailing the fact that the government can't just kick down your door and stick a needle in your arm. You know, like they were talking about that as though that was like you know' it's, it's too bad that the government can't just do that. So what are we going to do? What, what can we get away with in terms of forcing people to get this vaccine? And so they were talking about how uh, uh, essentially if you want to have any freedom, you need to get the vaccine. If you want to be able to live your life, if you want to go to a sports game or if you want to have a job or if you want to travel and have a passport, um, you, you have to have the vaccine.
0: That's the scariest one to me. The idea that the government could essentially trap you here if they chose to connect something like this to the ability to have a passport. And without a passport, of course, you can't leave the country. So now you're in prison, essentially. A pretty big prison, but prison
1: nonetheless. It's essentially, yeah. Um, right, exactly. Um, basically, you're under house arrest <laughs> without due process of law. That's essentially what it would, would amount to. Um, and so, I mean, there's been talk about that from the beginning. You know, I mean, again, the Imperial College paper. You, the other part of that paper was was how they, um, you know, after they, 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 the authors of that acknowledged how the second weight, you know, the, the weight, the, once the lockdown measures were lifted and there'd be this overwhelm of the hospitals, that was even worse than had they just continued with the initial policy. And and so they, they kind of came up with this, you know, quote unquote solution to that, which is to uh, lock things down. And then when the, when the caseload kind of lowers enough, they can kind of open up society a little bit. People can kind of go back to their jobs a little bit. And then when cases rise again shut everything down again and then it's just like like a light switch turning the economy on off on off on off which is completely insane but that was what they proposed uh and and they said that we're gonna have to do you know this would have to go on until you know there was a a vaccine so that is the whole end game i mean it was sold to the public we have to flatten the curve or we have just for a temporary time we got to shut things down just to flatten the curve and then we can kind of open things up and get back to our lives um but that was never what you know the the you know the the scientists behind this paper we're talking about they were always from the very beginning the exit strategy was mass vaccination uh, and of course you know when you st- when you're talking about mass vaccination as a solution you know policy solution to the problem of course that segues right into the issue of mandates uh, because there's no way that would be even be possible you know assuming there was a safe and effective vaccine Starting with that assumption—it's a real would, big would, assumption. It would, it would, you're right, it's, it's just a huge assumption, and in fact, a completely unrealistic assumption. Um, but even if we even if we allowed that as, a, as an assumption, you know, it would it would have to be it would have to be very widely used. I mean, it would have to be wide acceptance of it.
0: And I hear conflicting information on this. Uh, maybe you have some some light you can shed on it. Uh, have there been effective vaccines against this type of virus in the past? Is there even a reason to believe, putting aside any possible safety risk to taking a vaccine, that there could even be a really effective vaccine against it, even assuming everyone was willing to take it and happy to do so?
1: No. Uh, in short the short answer. Um, they've tried to, I mean, you think about it, common human coronaviruses are a common cause of the common cold. In fact, upwards of 20% of, of colds, um, cold illnesses and influenza-like illnesses uh, around the globe are caused by common coronaviruses. And it, there's never been a vaccine for the common cold, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and they did try to develop a vaccine when, when SARS with, with the SARS outbreak in 2003. Uh, they did try to develop a vaccine for that. And they ran into problems with what they called uh, uh, antibody immune enhancement, or antibody dependent enhancement. I forget the technical term for it precisely, but uh, in, in short, what it is is that the vaccine actually increased the risk uh, to the to the individual. I mean, they didn't have human studies at the time, but in animals, uh, the animals were at increased risk uh, from the virus uh, who were you know the animals who were vaccinated, and so obviously that was a, a big concern that they, they weren't able to, to really develop this so. vaccine. Yeah. And, and so, you yeah, know, there's been concerns, you know, if you can go to scientific papers about, about, you know, the vaccines under development for SARS-CoV-2 um, expressing this concern that, you know, we know from experience with trying to deal with coronaviruses from the past and trying to develop vaccines, that this is a potential problem. There's also problems we, you know, they don't know, they don't understand immunity really to, um, this novel coronavirus. And we've learned a lot and we, and we know some things, you know, for example, there's from the beginning, there was always th- this talk about well, we don't, you know, you, you could get it and you won't, won't gain immunity. And this is all this kind of fear mongering nonsense. Uh, and we know now that yes, the, when you're infected, you, you, you get immunity to it. It's just that it's not necessarily antibodies. It's not necessarily humoral. What's known as humoral immunity. It's not necessarily the antibody protection that, that you, that you gain. Uh, it, it seems to be more, yeah, at least equally, if not more so, dependent on what's, what's known as cellular immunity and specifically these T cells that, um, you know, are, are something it's distinct from antibodies that you have these cel- cellular responses that, that um, fight off the virus. And, and uh, so essentially your cells become infected with the virus and, and you have other uh, cells in the body that will then attack those infected cells and destroy them and, and destroy the virus along with it. And so that, uh, and is, this has, it, there's immune memory along with this. Um, so you can have one type of immune memory where it kind of, your body remembers how to produce antibodies to it, and also just cellular memory where your body just remembers how to fight the, the specific virus. Uh, and so, so we know this now. We know that there is immunity. We don't know the duration, of course. I mean, we won't know that for, for years down the road. But, you know, there's the same questions with, with any vaccine. They're trying to fast track a vaccine to the market. They will have no idea until after it's on the market. You know, Assuming that it does confer a protective benefit, how long that benefit might last, how long that vaccine-conferred immunity might last, um, they, have, they will have no idea what's about the, the risks of the vaccine. I mean, absent randomized placebo-controlled studies comparing long-term health outcomes, including mortality, between people who are vaccinated and people who are not vaccinated, uh, the, any claim of safety is meaningless. And so they they will have no idea about what's known as nonspecific effects, for example, of the vaccine. So nonspecific effects refers to, you know, any kind of um, whether beneficial or detrimental, you know, uh, unintended and unforeseen consequences of vaccination. And a good example of a nonspecific effect of of a vaccine is with the DTP vaccine, which is no longer used in the U.S. Uh, Developed countries have switched from the whole cell pertussis vaccine to an acellular pertussis um, vaccine. But it's still the most widely used vaccine in the world in in WHO campaigns. And that vaccine has actually been the best science that we have to date associates that vaccine with an increased rate of childhood mortality. So even though it appears to be protective against the three target diseases, it it seems to detrimentally affect children's immune systems so that they're at an increased risk of dying from other diseases. Wow.
0: And again, they always seem to focus on only one side. They sort of cherry pick one, one part of that, and then that's the part you'll hear about. You never hear about the other sides, about the possible side effects and the possible other associated risks.
1: Right. And there's no possible way if they're going to try to, like, rush these safety studies through in a matter of months. I mean, they're literally talking about months. I mean, they, they give the figure of 18 months to get a vaccine to market, which is, you know, now we're been several months into that. Um, the idea that they're going to be able to claim that the vaccine is safe, when that will have no meaning. When, if, when they, if and when they, they, they claim that the vaccine is safe, that will be a completely meaningless claim because they will not have done the studies that would be necessary to determine whether that vaccine is safe. And that's just that's just a logical truism.
0: Jeremy, one more question I want to ask you, and this is really more of a maybe an opinion kind of thing, but uh, for somebody who, uh, I mean, like yourself, I suppose, and I'm sure there I, I know for a fact there are many other people out there that have researched vaccines that are skeptical of vaccines that maybe they give certain vaccines to their child, maybe others they don't, uh, but that just don't buy the mainstream narrative, you know, without looking further into things. But here we are with so much pressure now, um, not just, and the scariest part is it's not just from the media, it's not just from the government, it's in many ways our, our neighbors and our fellow man, and most people that I run into that are seemingly just thirsting for the vaccine because it's already being presented as the only way that they can return to normal life. So not not only are we under the threat of mandates, but we're under the threat of, I don't know, our neighbors pressuring us and that sort of thing. So what can people who have genuine concerns about the risks of vaccines do when we can see this coming, when we can see the pathway, we can see the fact that one way or another, whether it's through laws or whether it's through uh, you know private sort of uh, enforcement or social pressures or what have you, there's going to be some sort of sort of mandate. Of this vaccine, I mean, there's almost no doubt about it at this point. So, what can people do?
1: Yeah, I think the most important thing to do is just to continue educating ourselves and then sharing the knowledge we gain and speaking out. I mean, everyone has to speak up and speak out. And, and I know that can be hard. I mean, I know I went through, I st- I researched vaccines intently in the science for years before I ever kind of gained the courage to kind of write publicly uh, about about it. Uh, so I know how intimidating it can be because it's a. You, you know, you could basically guarantee if you speak out against vaccines in any way, that or public policy, you, you you're placing a target on your back. And
0: even just publishing this interview, I know even a certain segment of my audience will have that reaction. And this is an yeah. audience who's
1: generally open to being skeptical of government. I'm sure. And when it's shared on social media, you will probably be, get labeled and attacked. And, um, and and so I think it just has it. it and the way to overcome that is to just gain enough knowledge that you gain the confidence that you know, you're confident in your position and your views and your knowledge of the subject. And so that's really what I try to do with my writing is to just empower people with that knowledge that they, that they need to be able to, uh, to really join this fight for health freedom um, and, and to be able to speak up and stand up and speak out against these kinds of policies that not only threaten our health, but our liberty. And, um, and so that's, that's really the goal of, of all the writing that I do and the work that I do uh, is to kind of just give people what they need to know to be able to take that step. And because that's the only way, you know, we have to essentially reach that critical mass uh, where the policymakers will know that if they try to push something like that on us, that it's never going to, you know, that, that it's not going to be politically feasible. And so that's the message we have to deliver. And we have to, we have to act now to deliver that message because, um, you know i i, I, I guess in a po- more positive note you know there's there's been polls of people's opinions about the vaccine and of course every time i read one of these articles about one of these polls they're always like oh no there's so many people who would not accept the vaccine and, and <laughs> i look at it and say oh no there's so many people who still would right. you know, despite <laughs> the fact that there's no data on safety or effectiveness of them. they're saying they'd get the vaccine without any data on safety and effectiveness i mean that's yeah, their headlines
0: will say like you know s- troubling poll suggests that yeah, not, not right, all americans right. will immediately comply with this Right and you're like somewhat uh, encouraging but still disappointing poll suggests that that's something. yes going. exactly
1: right. so, uh, so I, but, but it is it is good to see that there are there is such skepticism you know there are large numbers of people a plurality if not a majority who, who if not we are saying that I would not get the vaccine they're saying I don't know if I would, um, which is you know the sensible position you know wait for the data, wait for the science to be done, wait for the studies before you make that decision. They're shocked just by, I don't
0: know, and not even know. I mean, that, that's right. really unbelievable. That suggests right. that people shouldn't even see if it works yet or is effective or anything. <laughs> right. just accept whatever.
1: Yeah we're, yeah. we're supposed to be like disappointed that some people would say, oh, I don't know yet. They're like, they're not persuaded yet. Right. Um, the way that the way it's framed, of course, by the media. Um, but yeah, I look at that kind of on a more positive note and that there is, all, there are large numbers of people. And this is, this is the problem. And of course that National Geographic article talked about that, you know, how, you know, so many people who, they wouldn't get the vaccine so we have to force it on
0: them it's so sad i I remember when national geographic was just a a cool place to go look at you know pictures of animals and now look look can't even go there without it yeah yeah. no tyranny being forced upon us uh all the more important reason though jeremy for people to follow your work and uh, inform themselves more if you're at all concerned about this issue specifically uh i definitely want to encourage people to follow jeremy hammond uh definitely a great twitter account to follow but jeremy i'll let you uh, detail all the ways people can follow your work before i let you go
1: yeah, the best way is just to head to my website, JeremyRHammond.com. It's got my middle initial there, JeremyRHammond.com slash FDA. Um, and there you can sign up for my newsletter and also download a, a special report, uh, Five Horrifying Facts About the FDA Vaccine Approval Process, a uh, very uh, salient uh, topic report for what we've been discussing today. Uh, and so that's the best way to keep up with my work is to get on my newsletter. Again, JeremyRHammond.com slash FDA. Uh, and then, uh, once you're in my newsletter, of course, you'll, you'll, you'll know where to find me on uh, social media and, and whatever else. So definitely sign up.
0: Yeah. Well, Jeremy, I think uh, the work that you're doing is so important. And just the the existence of independent journalists in general is very important. So uh, even if there are independent journalists I didn't agree with as much as I do agree with you, I would encourage people to support them on a general level. But I certainly encourage people to look further into your work and consider supporting the work of independent journalists like yourself, because uh, we need you guys more than ever. We need people that aren't influenced uh, by mega corporations and by government out there, you know, giving at least their version of the truth in an honest way, uh, which is something that we see less and less of, especially in the mainstream media. So I uh, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and for all the work you're doing, Jeremy. So keep it up. Keep up the great work. Keep on roaring. Thank you. I appreciate this opportunity. All right, kitty cats. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Jeremy Hammond, an excellent journalist who I've been looking to have on for quite a long time. Glad we could finally make it work. And of course this episode was also available early to patrons of the show. You can become a patron and support us by joining the lions of Liberty pride over on Patreon at patreoncom slash lions of Liberty, where we have all sorts of bonus content live streams. We have the degenerate Gamblers show, which just came back. Uh, looking at all sorts of uh, gambling-related activities and various stories from Brian, Rico, and Odie every single week. We have the monthly Conspiracy Corner, a deep dive into conspiracies with the conspiracy crew, along with all sorts of bonus content. Besides just the content, you also get a discount at the Lions of Liberty store. You can find that over at lionsofliberty.store, and we just debuted a brand new shirt, the Taxation is Death t-shirt. You gotta get this puppy. This thing is hot, hot, hot flying off the shelves, but you get 20% off just by joining the Pride, so it's a win-win and win for everybody. Join the pride at patreon.com slash lionsofliberty and check out the store lionsofliberty.store Don't forget friends, it's not just me here every single Monday manning the flagship here at Lions of Liberty We also have the acerbic, ranting and raving Brian McWilliams every single Wednesday with his weekly shot of comedy, culture and liberty over on Electric Liberty Land, where he has been crushing it lately, you got to check out his interview with comedian Chrissy Mayer that he just had last week. And of course, John O'Doerman is bringing up the rear on Felony Friday. That's not supposed to be a joke. We're not supposed to giggle at that. I'm not 12, but I did so. Can we move on? John Odermatt wraps things up every Friday with his weekly look at the broken criminal justice system on Felony Friday, an incredibly inspiring, incredibly hard-hitting show that you got to be sharing with your friends and family. You get all these shows, the greatest libertarian variety show on this gosh darned earth for the price of one, by hitting subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever it is you listen to podcasts, but we particularly love when you leave us those beautiful, beautiful five-star ratings and great reviews. And if you drop a question in there, once in a while, we're going to wrap back around and do a little question and answer show with questions from our uh, people that leave us reviews over specifically on Apple Podcasts. So just a really easy way to help the show by leaving us those five-star reviews. It does a lot to, uh, does a lot to boost up them algorithms, my friends. It's all about the algorithms now. But the algorithms also say you shouldn't rant too long after the show is over. So I'm going to close this thing up, my friends. Until next time, live long and live free.